Well, welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, uh, that's very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Victoria. Well, welcome back. <laughs> and again, if you can have your video on, uh, some of you may have bandwidth issues, but if you can have it on, it's really nice to be able to see people as I'm uh, speaking and then as we have a discussion. So that's appreciated. So I want to say a few words about practicing at the time of the winter solstice, just a few words, and then mostly focus on continuing what we opened up last time, which is practicing with views, uh, positions, uh, narratives, uh, beliefs, and so forth. And how many people actually gave some attention to that during the last week? So, yeah. So, you know, a number of you. So first a little bit about the winter solstice. Again, this uh, darkest day of the year, darkest night uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. There's a poem from uh, John Updike. The days are short, the sun a spark, hung thin between the dark and dark. And it's an interesting time because for many of us, it's a mix of gatherings and holidays. A very traditional time for holidays. Of course, we have Hanukkah and Christmas, uh, Kwanzaa. I remember hearing from scholars that most likely Jesus was actually born in April. People learn that. He was probably born in April, but they uh, people coming after Jesus uh, switched and said he was born in December so they could compete with the pagans for the holiday time. Right? Anyway, um, so we have, uh, we have a time in which we are uh, sometimes busier with different holidays, but it's also a time when we can be um, much like the earth, like the trees and the bushes and the plants, we can be quiet. You know, I mentioned earlier that much of the earth is in the dark, there's stillness, there's a lack of movement, apparently, but inside there's all sorts of development happening that's getting ready for the blossoming in the spring. And I very much like to take this time as a time of uh, being with the darkness, you know, with non-doing or stillness. And I, I want to invite us, if that calls us, to, to be with the dark. You know, there's a way in which the dark is, uh, uh, as with the plants, with the trees, it's generative. You know, the darkness, we might say, of the womb that is bringing forth uh, something new. And it can be a time when we go more deeply, you know, like we were hearing the, the account of the uh, retreat at, at Deer Park. can be a wonderful time to be quiet, to go more deeply, to see what wants to emerge, to have enough stillness and quiet in the next days. I, I'm certainly intending 
personally to do that. I've deliberately uh, not scheduled anything except for a family and friend gathering or two uh, between uh, Christmas Day and January 2nd. So that can be an invitation. And again, I'll be giving a more extended talk along with Risika Razak on this theme of uh, embracing the dark and inviting the light at the time of the solstice. So both in the darkness and in our, our being quiet, but also in our gatherings, uh, practicing with views, our theme from last week, practicing with views, beliefs, and so forth, uh, narratives, stories, is a crucial part of our practice. And we can really, uh, really be with uh, this way of practicing. So what I want to do today is maybe in the first part of the talk, review some of the main points given last time. Maybe take about a third of the talk to review where we were last time, partly because not everyone here today was here a week ago, and then to bring in some further dimensions of practicing with, with views uh, to really, in a way, give some other tools, some other practices, some other perspectives for practicing with views. Last time, I focused on practicing with views in two main ways. I brought out four of the core teachings of the Buddha on views or opinions or beliefs or narratives. And I also then gave three ways of concretely practicing with, with our views, our opinions, our, you know, our positions, whether they be uh, political positions or views about ourselves, or views about uh, the world, about other people, uh, a very crucial part of our lives and a part of our practice. The basic uh, the basic perspective given is that views can be skillful and they also can be used in an unskillful way. The short way of making sense of what is skillful and what is unskillful is by saying that two things really. One is that views are at best practical aids for our own awakening process. In other words, we can have skillful views that help us. Again, in our meditation, in our understanding of ourselves, in maybe in political positions as well. There can be skillful views that are at best practical and helpful. The main way that we are unskillful with views or could be ideas, positions, is naturally enough when we get attached to them. When we grasp after them, uh, ones we like, and when we push away those we don't like. And so, very crucial issue for our practice, very crucial issue for our relationships, right? Something we can explore in our holiday gatherings. And I look forward to hearing 
about what you explored in the last week. I remember, uh, I remember Bill was going to bring this all back to your your thinkers club, right? I remember that. Yeah, and uh, other people were going to explore this, and so. How do we work with differences of views? Obviously a huge issue at the social political level in the, uh, both in the United States and many other places, you know, where there often is a polarization of views. People don't even talk to each other uh, or talk to people with different views. So I think I um, can really not understate the crucial nature of practicing in this area. The Buddha's word for view was ditti, D-I-I-T-H-I. And he meant by that different things. And he was particularly referring to spiritual views of his time, you know, and really counseling people um, to really hold any views practically, not to become attached to views, even the views that he himself would be offering. You know, there are lines where he said, don't be attached to the Dharma. Don't be attached to the teachings. So I gave several um, very crucial passages from texts from the Buddha. And I'll just mention these without going into much detail. One of them was the sort of the parable of the poisoned arrow. This was the text where the Buddha said, suppose someone was shot by a poisoned arrow. And that person would then ask, I won't really be treated until I know who shot the arrow. What kind of arrow was it? What kind of shaft did it have? What was the clan name, clan name of the person who shot it? And the Buddha goes through a lot of these questions that someone would ask, and he concludes very easily, that person asking all those questions would die and would not have the information desired. So basically saying all of these pieces of information, we might call them uh, views, point to the deeply practical nature of the knowledge we have. The second text I gave was of the Buddha talking to a wandering yogi who asked, um, is there a self? You know, referring to the famous teaching, perhaps about not self. And the Buddha refused to answer. The, the wandering yogi Vachagota then asked, is there then no self? The Buddha, Buddha refused to answer. He said, my answer about these views would not be helpful for this wandering yogi. Right? And so he left everything on a practical basis. How we work with views is by asking, are they practical? Are they helpful? You know? the, the third text I gave was the, another kind of parable where the Buddha said, the teachings and practices are like a raft. They bring you to the other side. They take one across a body of water. And we could say this is the journey of awakening. 
And the Buddha said, when you awake, they're useful. The raft is useful for, for making the journey. But when you make the journey, should you carry the raft on your back for the rest of your life when you're on the other shore? That was the analogy he gave. He said that would be very foolish. And he said, this is a quote from that passage, when you understand that the Dharma is like a raft and that you should let go even of positive things, not to say negative things, then you would you would, um, you would let go. The Dharma is like a raft. It serves the purpose of crossing, not the purpose of grasping. So don't grasp, even at the Dharma, right? Don't hold it too tightly. And then a similar teaching came from the fourth text I gave, which is where the Buddha was talking to a group of people in a village called the Kalamas who had many teachers pass through, who gave conflicting teachings and often uh, bad-mouthed uh, other teachers, said negative things about them, and they said, what should we believe? And the, the Buddha answered, don't believe it just because some teacher said it. Don't believe it because it's in the scriptures. Don't believe it because it's there in tradition but rather look carefully yourself. If it's not helpful, abandon it. If it's not helpful, and if it's not supported by what the wise say, abandon it. If it's helpful and supported by the wise, then follow it, but don't hold it tightly. And so we get a very pragmatic approach. Views can be helpful. Watch out for being attached to them. That's the core teaching. Yeah, very straightforward, right? And so that becomes the basis then for our practices. And I gave three practices uh, last time for working with views. The first was to be mindful of our views. See what our top five are, our top ten, right? That's a very interesting practice. See what uh, I repeat the most. It could be political views. It could be views about myself, you know, negative or positive. What are my views? Could be views about other people. You know, different kinds of views. What are, my, what are the most frequent visitors that we could call views or positions? And that was the first uh, suggested practice. Along with that, when a view stays for a while, see what it's like from the inside. When I have, let's say, maybe a negative view about this person's political position, what do I actually experience inside? What emotions are there? Do I maybe experience anger or being judgmental? What are my thoughts? You know, what's going on in the body? Explore what it feels like to hold a certain view at a certain time. You know, and so that was the first one. The second practice was an interesting one. It was to, when I notice a charge around a view, maybe with another person, start inquiry. When I have a really, let's say, negative view about someone, start an inquiry. You know, what's going on inside? So some overlap with the first practice. What's going on inside? What's, what am I experiencing? Maybe anger, resistance, a lot of thinking about why this view is bad. 
you know, and then we can ask questions like, why is there so much uh, reaction to this view? Is there maybe something from my own history that's there? Is there something I could learn from this person? Heaven forbid, <laughs> right? Is there something I could learn? So to take noticing a difference, especially when there's a charge, as a starting point for inquiry rather than fighting or conflict. That's interesting. Third practice is related. It was, it is to develop empathy when we are with someone with a different view and ask, why is this view important for this person? Is there a deeper value? Is there something important for this person connected with this view? You know, and I gave the example last time of being at Los Alamos National Laboratory, which with an interfaith gathering, where we were actually doing a kind of demonstration related to nuclear weapons. But then we would have lunch every day in the main cafeteria and meet with scientists and technicians, just informally. And it was very interesting for me to really want to hear you know, they would typically give their justifications for why building nuclear weapons is important. You know, often talking about security or, um, you know, we're the good guys and, you know, we need to do this and so forth. And it was very interesting just to be more empathic and listen. So we can do that with people with different views. Not an easy practice, but that's the third practice I gave. So... I want in the rest of the talk to go into further depth and give some further waves of practicing, some further perspectives on, on views. And I want now uh, Maria Cristina to bring, use our screen share and to bring up an image of a very helpful uh, model called the Ladder of Inference, which comes from Chris Ardris, who was a teacher at um, MIT and also at the Harvard Business School. And he developed this model quite a while ago as a way of making, you know, it was actually, he designed it for some of his students, but it was really to understand how we move from sort of uh, raw data to develop views. And this is, it's a model of a very, uh, ordinary process by which we have certain information or data, and then we develop generalizations based on that. You know, and then we could talk about views as like generalizations. So this is a normal process, part of our life. There's nothing in itself uh, problematic or difficult or dangerous about this. But I'm going to be using the model to point out how we get into trouble with our views. And so I find the model very, very helpful. And also just to give almost like a, a very helpful image so that we can see when, you know, with our mindfulness, when we're moving to generalization. So here's the model, very simple. At every moment, this is where we start with the bottom of the ladder. At every moment, there is virtually an infinite pool of data. Right now, you could be focusing in all sorts of ways. 
virtually everyone is intently focusing on my words. You also could be thinking about lunch or about what to wear to the gathering this evening or something else or about some news story or just something that happened yesterday. There's a, virtually an infinite pool of available data that we can draw from at every moment. And I forget the exact uh, quantity of data that neuroscientists give, but it's something like there are, at every given moment, there might be 10 or 15,000 available pieces of data. Out of that, we select very, very few of them, you know, for our attention. So we select data out, we look at the model of the ladder of inference, we listen to my words maybe. At a certain point, we go further up the ladder, we add meanings. We might say, oh, this is a very interesting model. I'd like to learn more about it. Or we might, uh, you know, we might, again, based on my, uh, my talk so far, you might add, oh, I really, you know, I really want to work further with views or, or maybe the opposite view. You know, so you add meaning, maybe you make assumptions, maybe make assumptions, this is a great model, or, um, you know, maybe uh, an assumption about, you know, I need to work, I need to work on views or whatever. And then there, I'm not making a strict separation between meanings and assumptions conclusions and beliefs, but I think the model is suggesting that we're going to greater levels of generalization. You know, we may make immediate assumptions about the model, about what I'm saying. We might draw conclusions. I really want to go into this further. We may adopt beliefs at this point. You know, I, you know, could be like, I'm, um, I'm a really good practitioner with views. I, I, I don't get attached to views. You know, we might think that or we might think the opposite. And then we also might further take actions based on my, on my beliefs. You know, I might devote the next week or two to really focusing on views. And the other, the other piece is that there are ways in which my beliefs, this isn't uh, here in this version of the model, but my beliefs can actually go down and influence very much how I select data. You know, that, you know, what I believe is important will be connected with uh, what, I, what I notice, right? If I'm interested in, you know, if I have the belief that, um, I don't know, could be that um, other people need to listen to me more and then I notice someone apparently not listening, I will really pick up on that very quickly. So there's a way that the beliefs hook into how we, uh, how we notice things, how we select data. So that's the model so far. So how to work with this? One very, very helpful way to work with this is to really notice when we are going up the ladder and to notice this in ourselves, to notice this with others. How can I, how can I uh, have a sense when I'm going more to views or generalizations, and when am I staying more with the data?
you know, and we'll, you know, we'll connect this with problems with you is that, you know, this can be very helpful for seeing that a lot of the problems with our views come from when we are driven up the ladder by reactivity. When I, let's say, have a difficult experience, I have a painful experience with this person, and I go up the ladder to a generalization, I shouldn't have anything more to do with this person, right? That may or may not be a problem, but we can see how the pain of my experience, which is lower down, drives me to generalize. So that's something we can really look at, and it may lead us to being attached to our views. You know, that we, you know, when I was uh, working during the meditation, I noticed a view that I had, and I did some practice with it, as I was suggesting that we do, and I noticed that when I actually went down and looked at my direct experience, I noticed some anger. And I stayed with the anger, and there was some sadness. And when I really stayed with those emotions, I didn't hold the view so much. So we want to see to what extent are my views sort of driven by unprocessed or unacknowledged pain on the one hand, or it could be grasping on the other, right? And so the model is helpful for that by letting me know, oh, sometimes I need to actually come down the ladder and be with what is driving a particular view or belief, right? Very crucial to do with ourselves. We can also even do that with others through empathy practice. Do we have a sense that this person's view is driven by anger? driven by something painful. A lot of political views, as we know, are manipulated by leaders who manipulate some of their anger or some of their pain and often scapegoat people and really manipulate that underlying pain. So one of the practices we could do when we notice a view is to try one, I call this practice dropping down. We can actually go into the body go into what's at the bottom of the ladder and see, is there something, you know, are there emotions there beneath my view? This can be a very skillful practice that we can do on the basis of the ladder. You know, we can, again, notice, um, notice what other people are doing. We can notice, oh, you know, go to a gathering and study. Oh, that person just went up the ladder, <laughs> right? Can really can notice that. So let's let go of the screen share now, Marie Christina. And so this can be a very, very useful model. Yeah. So we can we can let go of the screen share. It's still on my screen. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So does that make some sense? Can really, uh, and so it can be a wonderful practice. Again, this dropping down practice, we notice a strong view. Can I actually go into my body a little bit, go beneath the verbal level and see what's there beneath the surface? Sometimes we'll notice that emotion, sometimes not. 
but we want to find ways of seeing what may be driving us up the ladder. You know, and is there some emotion, is there some grasping? And so I, I, I'm bringing in this model of the ladder of inference because the image can really help us. In fact, we could say that um, people who work with the field of conflict transformation, they are very, very skilled when we work with a conflict in bringing people down the ladder. Think of a conflict. Often conflicts are at the level of positions, right? I have my position, you have your position. I have my view, you have your view. And I think what I would say is that conflicts are very, very rarely resolved if we stay at the level of views. What we need to do is to see what's beneath the view, because often in conflicts, the views are driven by pain. I have my pain, I generalize about my pain, you're the cause of it, you're the problem, or some version of that. The other person does the same, and someone skilled in working with conflict tries to bring the interaction down so people can actually say something like, when you said that, or when you did that, that was painful. And not go so much to the story or the view, but actually just stay with the pain. And if we can do that without interpreting, often, let's say in an interpersonal conflict, that can actually open up the heart of the other person, especially if there's some relationship already. And so I'm, I'm bringing in this uh, model because it can be really, really useful to remind us to see what is driving the view. Sometimes what's driving the view can be healthy or skillful. I have the, my view, maybe, um, maybe I have views about um, um, what is helpful for developing a healthy relationship. I have certain views, but those might be driven by my want, my, my, what's deeper, which is really wanting that healthy relationship. So, so I offer that ladder of inference as a very helpful practice. Notice, again, it's kind of funny. You can go to a party, go to a gathering. Oops, that person went way up the ladder. Oops, right? Oops, I went way up the ladder, right? Just noticing that. And then often coming down, okay? So that's the first sort of uh, further practice I want to offer. And then the second one is that when we're committed to working with views and practicing with views, it's a deep area. And there's a major complication, which is that many of our views are unconscious or semi-conscious. Doesn't that complicate things? <laughs> We are carrying around all sorts of views, and we don't even know what they are. Those can be personal views about myself, and I'll go into more depth on this. They can be views connected with my social conditioning. Could be about gender or race or sexual orientation, all sorts of views that we have, which recently have been sometimes talked about as being 
examples of what's called implicit bias. Biases that we either don't know or are half conscious of, right? And they can also be, um, they can also be uh, aspects of our general spiritual ignorance, you know? Um, so I think that this complicates things that are, you know, the view, we can hold all sorts of views without even knowing that we hold views. And that, that again, makes it harder. They're, they're relatively unconscious. You know, I mentioned, I think they come in, um, they come in different areas. Some of them are more personal and psychological, often coming from, uh, you know, difficult or painful experiences we had when we were young. You know, I, I've, you know, for an example, you know, I find a lot of these when I work with people around the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, because a lot of self-judgments come out of difficult childhood experiences. You know, for example, some that are very common, I notice, um, I've noticed several people whose parents divorced when they were between the ages of five and 10, and they developed the unconscious belief. If someone gets close to me, that person will leave. You know, cause that, that can happen. That's the child's best way of making sense of something at age five, right? And that can stay unconscious as a view. And then, you know, maybe the person's in a close relationship at age 30, the partner wants to go away for a weekend and the person gets freaked out. Don't go away, you know? It can be that unconscious view that our relationship is threatened by the person going away for the weekend because of that old, relatively unconscious view, right? That's an example. Or another view that develops uh, out of situations of divorce, if something bad happens, it's my fault. Right? Can be relatively unconscious, but really kept on until we actually start bringing it to consciousness. You know, there can be others like, um, you know, there can be others like probably one that I developed, which is, um, you know, that's that, um, for example, anger is bad. Probably, I think as a kid, I developed the view that anger is bad, but I didn't know I had the view. But if I saw someone who got angry, I would say, bad boy, bad girl, right? Or if I got angry, I would criticize myself. I didn't even know I had that view. Does that make sense? All of us have some version of this. It can be connected with something that was difficult or painful as a child, or sometimes as an adult, even something like trauma, you know, that we develop views on the basis of that. You know, I may have the view, I don't really belong. That may be there for some reason when I'm younger, and I may still have that and not really be aware of it when I'm older. You know, the views can also, as I mentioned, take the form of uh, social conditioning. I can have views about gender or race or sexual orientation that I'm not really aware of maybe until I get older. How many of you know that you had certain views 
early in your life that were unconscious, but now you're more aware of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very common. How many of you would say the same sort of a personal view as like the ones I was giving uh, that maybe came from childhood? How many of you have, have looked into those, right? So this is almost universal, right? But, and this, this can, we can see really deepens our sense of how we work with views, right? Complicates it. If a lot of our views are relatively unconscious, how do we work with views? You know, it's hard enough to work with our conscious views, right? It's hard enough to work with the practices I gave last time. That's not easy, you know, because we just habitually repeat our views. So you can see how this is a, a powerful area of practice, right? And something we could really focus on for, what, uh, you know, a few months or significant period of time. And, and, and then there's this other area that I think is connected with um, traditional teachings where the Buddha said we're actually not really aware very deeply of three particular areas. We're not really aware of impermanence on a deep level. We're not, and, and what we do is we tend to think things are permanent, even if we intellectually know they're not. You know, I'm not going to go into much depth on this right now, but I'll just mention it. Another area is that we don't, we're not really aware of our view that grasping after the pleasant is a good way to go in life. You know, we may have that view. The Buddha said when we do spiritual practice, we look into that and we may see how much that view is at the basis for a lot of what we do. You know, and so that's why really the Buddha said that looking into our grasping as well as our pushing away, what I call reactivity, is right at the center of our practice. And when we do that, we can see how we may actually have deep habitual tendencies to want to grasp after the pleasant, right? We can see this in all sorts of ways, right? How many know that in yourself, you know, in different ways, right? It's very, very common. And then the last area the Buddha pointed to was that we have views about ourselves as being, maybe of being um, separate or individual or lasting forever, right? And the Buddha said, we really want to look deeply at that. So how to practice with, the, with these more unconscious views? I think we can have a sense that we need patience, right? That, you know, when I work with people on transforming the judgmental mind, it takes a while even to start surfacing some of these unconscious views, like, you know, if I get close to someone, that person will leave, or if something bad happens, it's my fault. It can take time to really even notice that that's there, let alone work with it, right? You know, and I, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I work, I've worked with people who are in their 60s and 70s who are working really in a focused way for the first time with, um, with these kind of views. I, I use the language and call them limiting beliefs, right? And it can take time to really notice them. And uh, when I work with uh, transforming the judgmental mind, I have a four-step model in, in, uh, that gives some suggestions for how to work with it. 
The first stage is that we develop tools. We develop mindfulness. We have resources, teachers, mentors, a community to look at this. We develop the qualities of compassion because to some extent looking into views, particularly limiting beliefs, is to go into difficult or painful territory, right? So we want to approach it with compassion. And so a first step is really developing tools, starting to go into the territory, noticing our views, and we start to get hints by looking continually at our views, what are some of the deeper ones? Maybe we recognize these in our family context or in our cultural context. We can notice certain views as being predominant. And then we, we continually look more deeply. We start to get a glimmer. Oh, do I have something about anger? Right? You know, and for me, uh, you know, naturally enough, uh, I had a intimate relationship where the other person was angry quite often. You know, the, the universe sometimes um, takes care of us, <laughs> right, so to speak. Um, but, you know, when it took time for me to really get to realize I had a view about anger, right? I, if someone asked me when I was 20 years old, I wouldn't have known that, right? It takes time, right? It takes time to notice that just to notice what are the repetitive views. That's often a hint. That was the first stage. Second stage, a certain point, we get a sense of what that deeper view is. And then the, the invitation is to really keep studying it, look at it, notice how it appears, notice what triggers it, notice what triggers that deeper, more habitual view. And that makes possible, you know, um, over time, when we get really familiar with it, it makes possible approaching that whole area in a different way and having a different approach. You know, the limiting belief has been repeated typically thousands or millions of times in our experience. We can still, because of neuroplasticity, develop a different approach. I can have a different way of being with anger, right? I can really approach that differently. I have to have looked a lot into my attitude of anger and watched my repetitive unconscious view come up a lot. I had to do that a lot, right, to, for transformation to occur. And um, same thing if I notice the view about if someone gets close to me, that person will leave. I have to look at that really, really deeply. Notice when it comes up many, many times and then I might be able to develop a different way of approaching it, you know, that, um, you know, that moves away from that old view. And then we develop a way of approaching that whole area in a different way and bring that into daily life. That's the, the fourth of my stages. So what that really points to is that Working with views, I think, is a lifetime practice. We start with the views that are conscious to us, and we can work with those um, using some of those practices I gave, and that can be quite wonderful. As we do that, we want to be sensitive. Are there views which seem 
more intense, more powerful, have an aspect which may be more unconscious, automatic. And that starts giving us hints about these more unconscious views. Again, I've pointed especially today to the more personal or psychological material, but there are these other ways that this is also true in terms of our social conditioning, and we might say our conditioning about life in general. So the horizon is a, a big one, right? I think we have a sense that this can uh, be a way of practicing which we can work with in a more ordinary way, and we can also go into the depths with it. And so I invite us to practice with this during our holiday gatherings. <laughs> okay, look for people going up the ladder. Look for, you know, maybe we have a sense, oh, that's my, you know, family members, yeah, unconscious beliefs. And watch, watch yourself telling people that they have unconscious views. That's often not so skillful, <laughs> right? So anyway, but um, let me stop here and just invite us to sit for a moment and see what may have resonated with you from the talk, something that was maybe sparked, maybe an area that you want to ask about, share something. Take a minute or so now just to see what's there for you. So thank you. We have a nice uh, chunk of time for discussion, and I'd love to hear, um, it could be a nice way to start just to hear from people who worked with our practices during the last week. You know, if you want to share some of what you noticed, some of what you explored, let me invite that first, and then we can, we can go further from that. Anyone like to share? Um, you would like to share what you noticed uh, in the last week? Uh, Bill, thanks. Yeah, this is from the uh, from the Thinkers Club, right? Yeah. So you can unmute and let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks, Al. I uh, appreciate the discussion. It was really uh, helpful, and it was I was able to spend some time during the week to think about um, views, my own views and those of others. And uh, before our, our philosophy group, I actually posted um, something in the, uh, the chat area that, that got some response. And it was uh, just to talk about how I really try to bring people, uh, find what's common, the commonality uh, with the, that community and also with my own family. I've got a large family and gathering, especially with the holidays coming up. So, uh, 
And what I added to this was some things that you said, some of the tools that you had uh, brought forward, uh, you know, find out what matters to that person, uh, bring empathy and uh, understand that uh, their struggles and journeys that brought them there to their view. And um, again, what's important to them, you know, is it security, is it community, is it being heard or something else? And, um, and I practiced that during the discussion. And there were times when, you know, my own bias would get in the way. I, I love the, the ladder that you have up because as, as we have our own bias based on the, uh, you know, the culture around us, I see that as we go up the ladder, those biases can be a little bit stronger. And then recognizing those biases help us come back further down the ladder. And just for myself, it, it became more uh, a practical process to really think about where they're coming from with their views. Because we, we actually had a discussion about euthanasia uh, last week or on Monday, and uh, there were some strong views. And where those strong views really came from was really for, for those, for a group, was uh, very strong views on, the, on their religious beliefs. Mm. And then there were some others that were from, uh, one, we had one uh, older lady from Canada that really brought her own experience. And it was great to hear someone's experience and how that really influenced the group in terms of what became their views. And then again, laying into empathy and trying to understand, uh, you know, what, what came about to bring their views into focus was, was helpful. So, so your talk last week, again, again, today, uh, is very enriching and I, I greatly appreciate it. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. And thanks, thanks for, letting us know some of that last week of practice. There's a lot there, and I, I think you're right to really focus on the empathy, the really looking into the sense of what matters, what's important for the other. That goes such a long way, right? Because it's actually very hard to be grasping onto a view and have empathy at the same time. It doesn't work, right? <laughs> Right, because uh, with with empathy, there's the the heart's more open, and grasping tends to shut down the heart. So, those those go such a long way. And I should just say that I I'll, I'll put the the ladder of inference model uh, up on Dharma Seed along with the talk when I upload the talk, and that uh, I did put up on Dharma Seed last week the uh, a PDF file of the quotations from the Buddha. So those are right there. You can download them if you wish. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Very, very rich inquiry. Let's see. I remember, uh, Carolyn, you had your hand up. Did you still want to speak? Very briefly. Um, I feel last week's talk mm -hmm. put me in the frame and in the middle of the week, someone reflected to me on how I push people away. And it suddenly sank in. 
And because I've done so much healing above, there's this layer of not wanting to be dramatic, but self-loathing, you know? Um, so again, it's it's been very helpful, and I thank you. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Carolyn. And maybe I'll just reiterate that as we, um, I, I was thinking of that line from uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> so we have, we have to be careful with that. And what that means when we're looking deeply into ourselves and what we're not aware of, uh, to, to hold it again with that empathy and kindness and the kind heart. So bringing in compassion practice. You know, as you uh, as you learn more, because some of it is hard to see. Some of what we 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 learn. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Carolyn. So we have some time for others, if you wish, and you can either use the raised hand function if you have your video on. I can see you if you raise your hand. Looks like a KM, please. And Hi, can you hear me okay? Can't see you, uh, but it's, um, if you need to be uh, without video, that's fine. Yeah, unfortunately today I do. Um, I'm going to try to figure out how to word this, but um, I noticed that there would be a situation where I'm not privy to information um, because the person is struggling with, uh, with something. Um, but then it ends up being a fight because the other person's kind of not making the decision. Um, and I became aware of that, but I wasn't sure if you would be able to comment on something like that in the context of this. This, so let me see if I have it clear. Um, there's, there's, um, a lack of information about what's happening and what is the other person doing again? They don't really take accountability or responsibility for their indecisiveness and their lack of maybe able to communicate or make a decision about something. Yeah. And, and uh, then they kind of put it on you. So they have a view that they make it your responsibility. And what what is your view? Do you have a view that develops as well? Yeah, that I'm the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... So they, yeah, they blame you and that maybe hooks up with what I was calling some of those, you know, remaining unconscious uh, views, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So maybe just some general reflections since, um, um, specifics are going to depend on the nature of the relationship, you know, and, uh, whether there's room for, change or movement with the other person. Sometimes there is, sometimes there's not. Uh, but you could certainly keep on looking into that, you know, unconscious you and yourself. As you do that more, you see it more, you can notice it getting triggered maybe by situations like this. And as you see it more and know it more, uh, the triggering can be noticed more quickly and it doesn't last so long. So that's one, okay. that's one dimension of practice. You know, it's, it's not, not really talking about the interaction, but just about your own individual practice, that as long as you keep working with your own unconscious view, it'll have less power over time. 
And when someone does that to you, then you'll see, oh, that person's trying to blame me. Or, you know, I feel a little bit of a hook, but I'm able to see it and not go there. So that becomes possible. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, so that's part of it. And in turn, again, the how you would respond to the other person is going to depend on the nature of the relationship and how you work with differences and conflicts. And, you know, and it... It sounds like there may not be a lot of potential there, but I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank, thanks, Cam. Uh, Victoria, please. Thanks. Um, I don't know if there's time for this. This is a a, a, a big topic, especially for me. That um, yeah. Well, maybe maybe Victoria, if you if you're. Uh, if you're relatively brief with your question, maybe it will, should be enough time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Point well taken. Um, uh, it's about the poisoned arrow. Yeah. And um, and I my dilemma is always that in trying to develop compassion and empathy for another person's position in yeah. any given issue that might be contentious, I I feel like. I need to do that poisoned arrow analysis. I mean, obviously the Buddha exaggerated the process, but, but I feel like I need to try to put myself in the other person's shoes and say, okay, what is it about this person's views that, that caused this problem with me? And if I were that other person, how, why would I be feeling the way I do, you know, to try to, in other words, like, I don't know where the boundary is in the investigation with the, you know, I, I understand the poisoned arrow in terms of like the big picture, yeah, but, um, but in terms of what's useful, um, I feel like the poisoned arrow idea in, in like a small format is, is helpful. Yeah. No, it's, uh, thanks, Victoria. It's really a great question. Um, yeah, because the poisoned arrow uh, parable is really asking us what is, you know, what's helpful information and what's not helpful information. It's not saying, you know, just get rid of all information. Or, right, right. <laughs> right, no information is helpful. It's not saying that. And so I think in your example, um, where let's say another person has a very different view, it can be incredibly helpful to have some information. You know, I think like, like Bill was bringing out in his um, report, the, uh, the empathy practice where uh, we ask... Um, what is the other person feeling in a given, you know, maybe in relationship to a view and what matters for the other person? That's really crucial. And we can be really helped sometimes in terms of understanding what matters by having some information about the person, right? If I know that that other person is working with unresolved trauma, and gets really activated by certain things that might involve interaction with me, that's incredibly helpful information, right? And can really, you know, and, or, you know, it doesn't have to be trauma, but it just could be, if I know something that this person had this kind of, has had this kind of pain, and maybe gets triggered in some of the, even some of the ways I mentioned, you know, um, you know, the other person has issues around anger, right? And, and so forth. For me to know, have that information can be very, very helpful. Sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. The empathy practice we can use 
often without knowing things about the other person, without having that information. And sometimes we have to do our best interpretation. What matters for the other person? It would really be helpful if I had that information. I don't, but I can do, have my best empathic uh, guess. So, so, so knowing about another person, and you know, this can be something that is an effect with some of our longer standing relationships where we do know about people can be really, really helpful for understanding why they have these views, you know, or, you know, you know, or, or even political views generally, you know, my, my comments about how, you know, we know that they're, you know, in scapegoating, there can be a certain level of pain that gets manipulated uh, by politicians and rulers, you know, maybe the pain of uh, low wages, unemployment, uh, and so forth. And then they get say, the real cause of your problems is these people. Well, having that information about what their background is, is very helpful for having a more compassionate sense of why they go to scapegoating, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's a really great question, and uh, we didn't take a huge amount of time. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we did. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Victoria. Okay. We're right near the, near the end now. If there is anything brief, I could take it, but otherwise we'll, we'll finish up. Um, how many would like to work further with views during the holiday time. Okay. Okay, very good. Uh, I'll take that as a deep commitment. <laughs> okay. Recognize scene, okay? And take a, take a few moments just to reflect on, you know, whether you raise your hand or not, how you might take this practice further in the next period of time if it resonated with you, or some aspect did, what comes next for you? And then let me finish by first uh, thanking Maria Cristina. Yay, Maria Cristina. Yay. <laughs> Yay, Maria Cristina. And invite you again to consider sometime in this uh, darker period, having a time of not doing and just seeing what is alive in you. Let me invite that for the next period. And then we'll close with the traditional dedication of merit. May our time together, may our practice be of benefit to us. May it be of benefit to others. May our time together, our practice, our inquiry, our exploration, ultimately be of benefit for all beings, knowing that we are part of that all beings.
So thank you very much for your your interest and your being with the group. And uh, if you'd like to, you can unmute. And I'll for people who are ready to go, I'll do my farewell. Till next time. Thank you. Thanks, Thank everyone. You. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. You like. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate our community inquiry. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.